Chapter 3, Part 2 of The Assault on Mount Everest, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nick Vlahakis, San Francisco. In the early morning of the following day, Thursday, June 22, when I woke up and looked out of my tent, the mouth of which looked straight up the valley between the big mountains, the clouds had lifted somewhat, and the whole end of the valley was filled with the gorgeous Chomolonzo Peak. And for an hour or so I was able to watch it with the clouds drifting round its flanks, and then, just as the sun lit up the valley for a moment, the great monsoon clouds coming up from the valley of the Arun, driven by the wind up the Kamachu, completely wiped it out again. It was a glorious glimpse, and the only one we obtained during our stay of more than a week in Sakayathang. We found encamped in the neighbouring woods Nepalese shepherds with their flocks of sheep, and saw, for the first time, the very fine type of sheep which these men own, a far bigger and better breed of sheep than exists in Tibet, and also carrying a very much finer coat of wool. They were rather strange to look at at first, as the whole forepart of their body was black and the hind part white. We also found that the Nepalese shepherds thoroughly understood the value of their own sheep. They keep them all to make butter from their milk, which they collect and sell in the bazaars in Nepal. All these shepherds were Gurkhas, belonging either to the Gurung tribe or Kirantis, and curiously enough, one of them was related to my servant Kahar Singh, he having gone through the mitt ceremony with his relations and that is quite sufficient for him to be also a mitt. This mitt ceremony is rather difficult to explain. It is not exactly blood brotherhood, it is more of the nature of religious brotherhood. But it is quite binding, as much so as an ordinary relationship. This eased the situation for us pretty considerably in the matter of obtaining milk and butter. As I have before mentioned, I do not myself eat butter in an uncooked state, but the remainder of the party reported that this sheep's butter was of very fine quality, and it was certainly very clean. These shepherd establishments are known as gots. Naturally forgetting that certain terms are unfamiliar, I told Wakefield that I had bought two sheep from the gots, he seemed more confused than usual by the strangeness of the country. As we were rather short of provisions, we dispatched Noel's servant and our excellent Chongay Tyndale to obtain supplies for us, the first down to the junction with the Arun, and the second over the Popti into Damtang, a large Nepalese settlement. The remainder of the party stayed behind, hoping for better weather in order to explore the upper valley of the snows, and up to the Popti to get a view of the country into Nepal, if possible. 
it was no use attempting to move unless the weather cleared to a certain extent. Meanwhile, we were living in a smother of cloud, mist, and rain. But how delightful it was to have an ample supply of firewood and to be able to build, for the first time since we had entered Tibet, a reckless campfire round which we could all sit. It is a real hardship in Tibet never to have a good roaring fire, and it is a little damping to one's spirits having always to go to bed in order to get warm. Whenever it cleared, we went for short walks through the neighbouring forests and into the neighbouring valleys, and saw quite enough to fill us with a desire for much more exploration. The forest of the Kama is unbelievably rich, the undergrowth, especially the hill bamboo, of a very vivid green, and the cedar and fir appear very dark, almost black against it. But the forest also contains every other kind of tree and shrub, proper to the eastern Himalaya, and the river banks were, in places, overhung with the most glorious Himalayan larch, identical with the European larch in appearance, but with possibly a greater spread of branch. The weather got worse and worse, and our food supplies lower and lower. There were no signs of the return either of Noel's servant or of the Chongay from Nepal, and so, with the greatest reluctance, we gave up further exploration as a body. We were reduced to only half a day's grain food for our following, and not only that, but the Tibetan porters whom we were expecting to help us back, and who had been ordered, showed no signs of arriving. Having searched the country round, we managed to rope in a few local people, mostly Tibetans, who had come over from Kata for wood. There is considerable traffic from the Tibetan side, as, in this well-wooded country, they cut most of the timber required for their houses, and carry it over on their own backs, or else on the backs of unfortunate yaks, when they can bring themselves to risk their yak's legs over this awful road. We carried as much luggage as we possibly could with us, not knowing how many men we should be able to obtain to send for the remainder. We had not enough men with us to carry the whole camp, and so two Gurkhas were left here in charge of what remained. They were also to meet Chongay and bring him back with them, and it was considered an absolute certainty that he would be in time to save them from a shortage of rations. Also, they would be able to get enough to keep themselves alive from the Gurkha Ghats, although these Ghats themselves are on very short ration of grain, living largely on sheep's milk. Our own porters and a few local people, with the help of a little chaff to excite them, vied with each other in the size of the loads they could carry, and they certainly gave us a first-class exhibition of load-carrying. One girl, about 18 years of age, actually carried a 160-pound tent by herself from Sakayathang to Chokabo over the top of the Chogla. Moreover, this tent had been wet for the last 10 days. 
and although we did our best to dry all our camp as much as possible before starting, it must have been at least 20 to 30 pounds heavier than it ought to have been. I am quite certain that not a single man or woman carried less than a hundred pounds that day over the pass, and this they did apparently without undue fatigue, arriving quite cheerful at Chicago. We started in fairly fine weather, a break, we thought, but before we had gone halfway up the hill, the clouds descended on us, and it was raining hard when we got to our camp. The day before we left, we came to the conclusion that it would be quite possible for a very small party to get down to the junction of the Kamachu over the Arun, and Noel himself was intensely anxious to photograph the Kamachu and the gorges of the Arun itself. He had also a plan, if possible, to get up the gorge and to cross up over the high cliffs and hillsides which would bring him down almost to the Alp where we had our picnic with Norton. This was a magnificent conception, but considering the weather, we thought that he would have a very rough time of it. He chose Morris as his assistant. He took off his own particular porters, reinforced by some Tibetans, and left on the 27th, we leaving on the 28th. While we had been over there, Geoffrey's feet had completely recovered, and he was able to walk now as of old. Norton could walk uphill, but his feet pained him when descending. His ear had by this time completely recovered. On the 29th, Geoffrey and I, leaving the remainder of the party, went down to see the Tsongpen of Kata, with a view to making arrangements for our final return. I had, previous to this, written to the Maharaja of Nepal, with a scheme by which Mallory should be allowed to cross the upper end of the Walung and Yalung valleys, and to cross into British territory by the Kangla, returning to Darjeeling by the ordinary route along the Singalela Ridge. The Maharaja gave his consent to this expedition, but unfortunately it had to be modified, owing to difficulties of transport and to the very bad weather. But as Mallory was rather pressed for time, it was arranged that he, Somerville, and Crawford should return direct to Tinky, crossing the Arun by the rope bridge which was utilized in 1921 for the return of the party, and from thence descending into Sikkim and travelling via Larkin and Gangtok back to Darjeeling. The remainder of the party, with the heavy luggage, would have to return via Shakar and the way we came, in order to square up our various accounts with the different Tsongpens and with the authorities, postal and other, in Faridzong and the Chumbi Valley. All this required a certain amount of arrangements. Before going into Kama, we had given the Tsongpen an outline of our requirements, but everything in Tibet, as elsewhere, requires a considerable supervision, and so Geoffrey and I went down before the rest of the party to complete our arrangements. 
On our way down, we met a large contingent of Tibetan porters coming over to move our camp. This eased matters off very considerably. They were sent off into the Kama to bring the remainder of the camp and on their return to move the full camp down to Tang. Meanwhile, we descended and had a long and very interesting interview with the Tsongpen, who by this time had quite lost all suspicion of us. He entertained us splendidly and presented us each with a jade cup before leaving. On July 1, we were all assembled in Teng, and packing up and dividing our luggage preparatory to the return of the party by the different routes. On July 3, Mallory's party set off, and we did not see him nor the rest of the party again until our arrival in Darjeeling more than a month later. We were now joined by Nolan Morris back from their adventurous journey up the Arun. They gave me a report of their travels. I think it would be worthwhile once more to point out what the course of the Arun is. The Arun is one of the principal tributaries of the Kosi River that is evident from the map and has a very long journey through Tibet where it is known as the Bongchu. It rises near and drains the plains of Tingri and Kumba and then turning due south forces its way through the main chain of the Himalaya directly between the mountain passes of the Everest group on the one side and of the Kanchenjunga group on the other. Between our camp at Kata and the village of Kiamathung, which is on the actual Nepal frontier, a distance of some 20 miles, the river drops a vertical height of 4,000 feet, and therefore we were particularly interested in the exploration of this wonderful gorge and we wished to find out, if we could, whether this tremendous vertical drop consisted of a series of great rapids and waterfalls or a steady fall in the bed of the river. It was also clear from first glimpses that we had of the Arun Gorge that lower down they must be of the greatest possible grandeur and interest. I have before described how we looked down from our picnic into the Arun and hoped we should be able to explore it. When we dispatched Nolan Morris, it was in terribly bad weather, the whole of the lower kammer being a smother of mist and the jungle dripping with moisture. We had, most of us, been down as far as a place called Chatromo, where the river is crossed by the road which leads up to the Poptila, and this is the common road down into Nepal. From there, the road is far less well-known and is not so well-marked. I will now give Noel's description of his journey. On the evening of the 27th June, at the end of our first day's march, we pitched our camp on a little pleasant grassy shelf, situated in a small clearing in the forest near empty shepherd huts, which comprised the camp at Chatromo, the hot, damp atmosphere of the Kama here at 9,000 feet harbors a world of insect life. No sooner had the sun set that evening than swarms of tiny midges emerged. They annoyed us for most of the night, 
except when, in moments of exasperation, we got out of bed and drove them away by lighting a small fire of juniper wood at the mouth of our tent. From Chitromo, a little shepherd track leads down the left bank of the river to Kayamathang. In actual distance, Kayamathang is not far, but the road is scarcely level for more than a few yards. It zigzags precipitously a thousand feet up and down in order to avoid the ravines through which the river rushes, thus trebling the marching distance. The forest here becomes more tropical. Bamboos and ferns are thick in the undergrowth. The trees increase enormously in size and leeches make their appearance. The path, where it descends to the river, passes through bog and marsh, where the Nepalese shepherds, who mostly use this road in order to reach the upper grazing grounds, have cut and laid tree trunks along the path. The forest here darkens, owing to the height of the trees, junipers being particularly noticeable, most of the trees being festooned with thick grey lichen. Here and there, on level spots beside the riverbank, one marches from the forest into delightful glades, carpeted with moss and thick with banks of purple irises in full bloom. Ascending and descending precipitously the hillsides, and covering all the time horizontal distance at a despairing rate, we came at last, tired out, to the bridge which leads across the Kiamathang and there found that another climb of some 1,500 feet remained before reaching the village, which is perched on a small plateau overlooking the junction of the rivers. Kiamathang, though strictly speaking in Tibet, is a typical Nepalese village. The neat little chalets are each surrounded by well-kept fields of Indian corn, wheat and barley. The fields are bounded by stone walls, and each contains a small makan, a small raised platform, from where a lookout is kept for bears at night. Kiamathang and the surrounding villages are so inaccessible that the people do not appear to come under the influence of Tibet or Nepal, leading an independent life. The village boasts of five gambus, headmen, all of whom, so excited at seeing Europeans for the first time, did all they could to help us, and insisted on accompanying us on our first march up the gorge. The road from Kiamathang, after passing the fields of Langdo, plunges once more into the forest. The path mounts up over cliffs, hiding the view of the river in the gorge below, but revealing across the valley the magnificent waterfalls of Tsanga, some thousand feet in height. At our first halting place, we met a fine old Gurkha shepherd, Ray, or Karanti by tribe, a man of some seventy years of age, who, many years ago, had been employed by the Survey of India, he was able to tell us much about our route ahead. This stretch of country, although inhabited by Tibetans, is yearly visited by Nepalese shepherds, 
who used the rough track in order to reach the grazing grounds on the mountain tops above the gorge. He told us we should find a track of sorts along the right bank of the river, which would eventually bring us out at Kata again. The Arun has no great waterfalls, but passes through three deep gorges, one at Kiamathang and one near Kata where it enters the main chain. There is another also between these two. For the rest, it is a raging torrent running through a narrow forested defile. In order to pass these gorges, the path ascends and descends many thousands of feet. Looking down from the ledges of the precipices, one gets occasional glimpses of the torrent below. The cliffs above frequently rising as much as 10,000 feet above the riverbed and ending in snow-capped peaks. Here and there, the promontories of the cliffs afford a grandiose panorama, which rewards the exertions of the terrific ascents, but as these alternate ascents and descents are not single occurrences, but the normal nature of the track, ever climbing up by crazy ladder paths and plunging amongst tangled undergrowth, one ceases to revel in the scenery and would forgo those bird's eye views from the cloud level for the sake of a few yards of marching on the flat. At the end of our second march, where the track appeared to come to an end, while pitching our camp in a small clearing, swarms of bees descended upon us, scattering our porters in all directions. They did no harm, however. Our third march was a struggle through pathless jungle, and, mounting over the great central gorge, on the far side of which we dropped down to the riverbed, we found a narrow strip of sand, just room enough to pitch our camp. This was one of the most beautiful spots seen in the valley. Wildflowers grew here in great profusion, the most conspicuous amongst them being some great white lilies, fully six feet in height. That evening, the rain, which had been falling most of the day, cleared, and the rising clouds revealed the luxuriant walls of the valleys, which seemed to rise almost vertically above us, with black caverns beneath where the trees trailed and projected over the water's edge. During the fourth march, we again struck the track, which is apparently used by Tibetans who come down from the Carter end of the valley to get wood. This led us up the side valley, descending from the mountains round about Chogla. We camped towards the top of the valley, and next day crossed by a new pass, which we judged to be about 16,000 feet in height, and then crossed the Sakaya Chu, which descends from the Samchung Pass across the Yulok La and descended on Kata. Well, I think that is a very fine description of an intensely interesting journey. One thing the party was quite certain of, and that was that they never would have got through had they numbered any more. It was very difficult to get supplies even for themselves as the roads were so very, very bad, and camping grounds so very, very small. They said all their men had worked like horses, 
but it was so warm that they took nearly all their clothes off and worked almost entirely naked. It is an extraordinary thing how, when one gets far back into the Himalaya, at altitudes at 7,000, 8,000 and 9,000 feet, one is often extremely warm. This is generally due to the fact that most of these places are usually between mountains and in confined conditions. Such altitudes on the lower spurs of the Himalaya are by no means so warm. We all envied Noel and Morris their trip and the gorgeous country which they had seen, and further than that, I in particular envied them the occasional glimpses which they could get right down the Arun Valley into Nepal, glimpses of country which I believe no European has yet looked on. As a matter of fact, I had also written to the Maharaja to find out whether it would not be possible for me to return to Darjeeling via this same Arun Valley. It was a mere ballon d'essai. I had no real hope that the rules and regulations of the Nepal Duabar would be overridden in my favour, but it is probably not more than 50 miles from Kiamathang down the Arun Valley to Dankuta, which is a large Nepalese town, and only some five or six days' travel from Darjeeling itself. What a wonderful experience it would have been. The Maharaja was extremely kind about it, but quite firm. At the same time as Noel and Morris arrived, our Chongay also came from the Popti route, and he brought with him quite a number of chickens and vegetables and excellent potatoes. He had been delayed at Damtang by the weather. There was quite a change in Chongay on his arrival. We were filled with admiration. He wore a Seaforth Highlander's bonnet and a Seaforth Highlander's tunic, both of which he had obtained from some demobilized Gurkha who had sold his effects in the upper Arun Valley. We joined hands and danced round him with cheers. Chongay bridled from head to foot. Soon after Mallory's party left, a note arrived from Crawford to say that his pony and his pony man had run away during the night, and asking us to find out about it, as he had been paid for the full journey. This was reported immediately to the Tsongpen. He knew exactly what to do. Without a moment's hesitation, he seized the man's elder brother, down with his clothes and gave him a first-class flogging, and nearly flogged old Father William himself, so angry was he, as this man was one of Father William's underlings. Father William was humbler than ever after this, and produced more and more green vegetables. On July 4 the main body set off, even now very considerable. We were to march direct by a road up to the present date untravelled, our first march being to Lume, which was also on the road used by Mallory and by last year's expedition. From there we marched up the Tsakachu instead of turning to our right and crossing the Arun. We had been largely in summer in Kata, 
but on our way to Lume we came in for a time to some of the very strongest winds we had met since leaving the Rongbuk Glacier. Crossing a little gully, I was nearly blown off my pony. Our camp at Lume has been described by Colonel Howard Burry and is a very charming spot. The following march to Zakachu was quite new ground, not travelled by any European, and was very interesting indeed, but extremely rough. It led for part of the way through a steep and deep gorge, extraordinarily like the gorges in the Hindu Kush in Gilgit and Chambal. The gorge, owing to its elevation, is of less depth, but the whole colour and form of the mountains, their bareness and barrenness, and the smell from the wormwood scrub, brought back to me the Hindu Kush in very vivid recollection. Those gorges, however, as so often in the West, are terribly and oppressively hot, but here, at 12,500 to 13,000 feet above the sea, we were in a fresh and exhilarating air. We camped at a village called Dra, at the foot of the pass we were to cross, which is called the Che La. Our camp was pitched in a very pleasant grove, and here we had, for the last time until we arrived at the Chumbi Valley, a gorgeous and glorious campfire. Curiously enough, the wood was willingly given to us by the inhabitants. The following morning there was a long march and a continual pull to the top of the Che Lar, about 17,000 feet, the last thousand feet being a very rapid ascent, but from the top we were almost in sight of Shakar and the Arun Valley. The camp at which we stopped was a very short morning's walk from our old camp at Pangli and separated from it by a low ridge. End of chapter 3, part 2